This is Mental Health and You with WCPA. We're your hosts, Taylor Kennedy, Caitlin Schaefer, and Jacqueline Simplecamp. Our podcast covers mental health topics for you. From us, licensed mental health professionals. Let's get to this week's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Mental Health and You. Ladies, how are we feeling today? We're feeling good. Feeling great. This week, we have someone special on the podcast, which has put me in a really good mood today. You know, this week, Mary Fitzgibbons agreed to come on the podcast to provide us with some really good knowledge on the Enneagram. Mary, thank you so much for joining us this week. We know that you don't like being called an expert, but you have been doing this for a long time and you are a wealth of knowledge for everyone here. We're so excited to hear from you and especially learn more about the Enneagram. Well, I really appreciate it. And you're right. I am not the expert, but I'd be happy to share. <laughs> we're definitely excited to have Mary on. She's a big part of our work. And so we're grateful to have her here with us today. Caitlin, I feel like that feeds right into, you know, the three of us know Mary very well. She yeah. plays a large role in our lives. But Mary, a lot of our listeners might not know you as well. So will you tell us just a little bit about yourself and your role at West County Psychological Associates? Well, this role began in probably 1987. Uh, I was uh, working in as a guidance director in a high school, had finished up my PhD and started into private practice. And so that was in 87. And I've been doing this since. I absolutely love what I do to the point where I haven't quite seen where the ending is coming yet. It's going to come, it's going to be coming pretty soon here, but no. I really love it. I really mm-hmm. enjoy it. And what makes me passionate about it, I think, is first of all, I love the idea of doing therapy. I also, believe it or not, like managing the office. That is, And I really realized that that's, probably maybe one of my strengths. But the issue about mental health is so important to me because obviously it is really that sense of of being able to give to somebody else. And when you see, especially over a period of time, people really getting well, it's, it's really very encouraging. But I'll tell you the real reason I do what I do. I think it's the relationships. I think that when somebody comes into the office and it's like a blank slate, I don't know them. But then we begin to know each other and I begin to hear their story and I begin to hear their emotions and their feelings and I begin to know them. And then eventually their story becomes my story. So we're pretty, it's a pretty interesting practice because we are able to do long-term work and that's not very common anymore. And so what happens is that I get to see these people over a period of time and I get to see the changes. But their lives also enrich my life. So I think that's what makes me so passionate. Mary, that's so powerful. I really love how, I don't know, like, yes, you're the director of the practice, but that, like, none of that's what you named. You named the relationships and how much joy you get out of the work you do. And I don't know, it's like one of my favorite parts of these interviews we do is getting to learn about why other people in our practice are passionate about mental health and, like, their job. I think that's fascinating. And I also think the issue of, of practicing not as a sole practitioner, but in uh, in our group, we are, we're sort of unique in that we are we're contractors here. On the other hand, we function as a group. Mm-hmm. And and what I also love about, about the position and the job is that I get to work with people that I really care about and I really respect. And I think that would make a big difference to me if I didn't, if I wasn't working with the group. Aww. Yeah. 
I agree. I think that's one of the best parts about WCPA is we really do. We're able to function as individuals, but we also have such a level of team support and like our own little family here. It's really meaningful. But I, well, I appreciate you seeing it that way. Yeah. That makes me happy. That really yeah. does. I also think that we're very diverse in our areas of knowledge, which helps. So like, for example, this week, right. we're talking about the Enneagram and we know someone in our practice who has this area of expertise, although she doesn't think she's an area or this isn't her area of expertise because Mary hates being called an expert. But, you know, I know a little bit about the Enneagram and Caitlin, Jacqueline, mm-hmm. and you guys know a little bit too, but mm-hmm. definitely compared to Mary, we don't know as much. So Mary, I'm so interested in presenting myself as a learner in this episode. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I still see myself as a learner in this, in this, uh, in this program. Will you start off just telling us a little bit about what the Enneagram is? The Enneagram, from my understanding, has roots in several wisdom traditions that includes Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So in the late 1960s, Oscar Ikatso, who was a Bolivian philosopher, began teaching the Enneagram as we know it today. And in fact, my understanding, and I haven't gotten this verified, but I've read it in several places is that the Enneagram is thousands of years old. Now, I can't quite picture that. But as we know it today, it really, its roots really came from just the 1960s, which is relatively recent. From the Ikatsu School in South America, a group of Jesuit priests learned the system and they brought it back to, uh, with them to the United States. So I did note also that, you know, much of this has come from religious uh, orders. And now, in fact, it, I, I think it's getting certainly spread throughout, you know, secular areas also. The Enneagram gained popularity as a tool within spiritual direction. And today it's widely taught as a way of understanding personality, addiction, relationships, and vocation. But it really speaks to the motivation as to why we do what we do. So... The Enneagram is a dynamic system, and this means that it recognizes that humans are far too complex and nuanced to fit easily into simple categories. It supports the evolving, maturing human journey. In other words, it's a growth model. As we look at other tests, we'll, we'll see our evaluation of personality uh, test. What we will see is probably label you, put you in a category. Whereas with the Enneagram, and this is a part that I love about it, is that, it, that we, we can see ourselves grow in, in our process. So who I am today was not who I was maybe 20, 30 years ago. And that shows up on the Enneagram. And so what happens, in fact, is you'll sometimes you'll see the uh, format whereby you'll have nine growth areas. And the, the bottom three are where you are at the most dysfunctional. The middle three are the average, and the higher three are who you are at a very functioning level. So there is a growth situation, but you often don't see that in other uh, personality tests. It's a powerful tool for self-discovery and even for spiritual uh, transformation. It is meant to help you in a lifelong journey. So as I look at the Enneagram for myself, I can see where I was, as I said earlier, 30, maybe 20, 30 years ago. It's not who I am today. And while we aren't going to be able to get into areas such as our wings, which are the number on either side of our own number, but the wings can change. And as over the years, what I've seen in terms of my personality type, I may be an eight, but in my early years, I had a seven wing. In my later years, I had a nine wing. 
I know that may not make much sense right now, but I'll, I'll explain these numbers and hopefully we'll see this maybe a little more clearly. The Enneagram's purpose is to help us uncover the traps that keep us from moving fully and freely as our true self so that we will use our unique, authentic gifts for the good of others and the world. I feel like the second part of what you're talking about a lot, like the personality aspect, is mainly what I've known the Enneagram to be. So everything else you just said was actually really fascinating to me because my knowledge is purely on the personality types and you know those different levels like you talked about. Jacqueline, what are your thoughts? Well, I was thinking how the Enneagram is different than other personality tests because it is dynamic and it allows us room to show growth when we're changing as we get older and have more experiences. And it also kind of leads us in directions and explains more about us, like if we're struggling or if we're doing well. And so I think just the way it's constructed is really interesting, honestly. That's mm-hmm. true. Like when you're in times of stress versus like times of health. That's exactly right. It's fascinating how in-depth and truly all-encompassing my results were when I completed the Enneagram in college. But Mary, you kind of started talking about like the different wings and levels. So will you get into that and just break down, you know, those different personality types for us? I uh, sure. Thank there you. Are, as I said earlier, there are nine person- personality types. The Enneagram teaches us that there are nine different ways of experiencing the world and nine different ways of answering these basic questions about life. Who am I? Why am I here? Why do I do the things I do? How we build and maintain relationships varies significantly from one number to another. And that's what's so fascinating about it. And again, I want want to reemphasize that maybe two numbers, two people can be looking as though they're doing the same thing, but what makes them different according to the Enneagram is their motivation for doing it. And as we get into the numbers, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. So let's look at type one, the perfectionist. Ones struggle with anger, but they turn it in on themselves so that it becomes resentful. Ones have a hard time believing they're good enough or worthy enough because of a constant inner voice that finds fault with everything they do. So they settle for being right or correct. I'm going to tell you that I think ones are probably the most prevalent personality type that I see in therapy. And what tells me that the person may be really one is that they talk about this inner way of looking at the world in terms of the fact that they hear a critical voice, it's a constant critical voice. Ones have a judging, comparing mind. They notice errors that others don't see, and they often feel a personal responsibility to correct it. Uh, So it's not just that they see it, but they have to correct their world. They have to make sure that everything is being done the right way. They believe every task or every step of a task should be done correctly. So they give their best, they do their best, they offer their best, but they expect the same from others. And that's where sometimes it's difficult. Ones can be difficult to be with because the demands they make, you don't have the same, maybe the same criteria for perfection. And they certainly feel very strongly that things need to be done in a certain way. And where this helps me is when I know a person is one, then I begin to realize, wow, they've got an inner voice that really speaks to them. And sometimes it's really pretty hard. It's not easy being one sometimes. Mm-hmm. The fear for ones is that they believe they are flawed in some fundamental way. Ones are afraid of being wrong. Ones avoid being judged as wrong or bad by seeking perfection in thought, word, and deed. Unfortunately, 
as they work to perfect themselves, they hold others to the same impossible standards they set for themselves. And that's what, and again, that's what makes it difficult in terms of sometimes being the one, but it's also difficult in terms of sometimes being in relationship with ones because our expectations can be so high. We all receive unconscious messages from significant others in our childhood, such as mothers or fathers. And that's where these voices, that's where these personality types are derived from those early messages. The message that the one did not receive as a child was that it's okay to make mistakes. So what the one never heard was, it's all right to make mistakes. One learned that they could never make a mistake. What the one really needed to hear is that you are good. A healing attitude for the one would be, well, maybe others are right. Maybe someone else has a better idea. Maybe others will learn for themselves. Maybe I've done all that I can do. Are there any questions about the one? I just think it's fascinating. The one thing that's going through my mind is how much I could benefit as like a clinician, like as a therapist through knowing my clients or even my personal life, I could benefit through knowing the people around me's personality type, because you're right. You can use it then to like pull on their strengths and understand maybe their areas where it's harder for them to interact. And I think, I just think that's fascinating. What I find interesting is I, I find with ones that I have more compassion when I understand there are ones. Absolutely. That I would probably not have if I just were not looking at the Enneagram at all. So in looking at the Enneagram, I think, wow, they are so hard on themselves. And so that, yeah. that allows me to have compassion as opposed to saying, why are they always having me? Why are they always expecting the most out of me? Why are they never satisfied with where I am? Mary, I think you bring up a good point, though, even in like relationships, you know, partner relationships, knowing each other's Enneagram and their number can really help us know more about, you know, the way they think and the way they function. And, you know, clinician client wise, it's a big deal, but also just in relationships. I think this can be super helpful. You are absolutely right. And uh, and it's fascinating. That's why I love doing this with married couples, our, our partners. I love that. Yeah. Because once they can see that this is a personality type, this isn't my partner or my spouse actually trying to do something that's, that's maybe seeming hurtful to me. This is who right. they are. This has nothing to do with me. Yeah. yeah. It brings it to like a very human level, you know, yes. just understanding people yeah. so cool. makes it like more vulnerable and it makes it easy for you to be compassionate. I mm-hmm. feel like when we can understand as human beings versus, you know, being left to make our own assumptions. And normally as humans, we assume it's a reflection of us or something we're doing or our mind sometimes can go negative with it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Taylor. All right. So, tell so, us about the two. Uh, let's go on to the two. Yes. And the two is the helper or giver. And I'll tell you what, uh, I may see a lot of ones in therapy, but I see a lot of twos doing therapy. For sure. Because <laughs> as Caitlin is pointing herself, is that? Yep, that's me. <laughs> twos need to be needed. Twos give a lot. Sometimes for altruistic reasons and sometimes in order to receive in return. Although it's usually a subconscious motivation. They don't realize it. They need to be needed. So. When twos enter a room, their attention automatically turns to others and asks, how are you doing? What do you need? How can I be helpful? So they want to be needed, and their their scope is others. They're looking beyond themselves. What what can they do to help the other person? 
Their motivation is to build relationships by sensing and meeting the needs of others. Uh, I have a one of, a good friend who's um, and a lot of nurses, a lot of therapists go into, you know, probably designated or identified as chief. And I have a good friend who's a nurse. And I mean, it's always when I see her, Mary, how are you? What's going on with you? And she really wants to know. And then it's, and I appreciate it because she's always got great advice, but it's, it's what can she do to help me? And, I, and she sees that as being her role. However, twos feel unworthy of being loved, so they're afraid to see themselves as loved and lovable. And that is the problem for twos. While they are out there taking care of you, they're not taking care of themselves. When they believe they are unlovable, it's hard for them to receive and trust the love that is offered to them in the relationship. And that's good. To, that's for me. For example, um, I have a relative who is a two. And sometimes I've got to remember that if this is really if this is really on target, sometimes she doesn't feel lovable. I don't see that. Here she's out doing things for others. However, what happens with the two is that they end up being very resentful after a while because they give and they give and they give uh, and they don't do enough for themselves. The message that you did not receive as a child is that it's okay to have your own needs. The message that they needed to hear is that you are wonderful. And the healing statement from the two would be, maybe I could let someone else do this. Maybe this person is actually already showing me love in their way. Maybe I could do something good for myself, too. And that last one is so important. Maybe I can do something good for myself. The two does not think that way. Their thinking is, I've got to be there to help others. And they need it to be needed. But as I said earlier, the, big, the, the biggest downfall and the greatest issue for the two is the fact that they eventually may end up resenting other people. So when they, you see a two who's really taking care of themselves, you have a high-functioning too. Any questions? Any comments? I do think it's interesting how a lot of people in the helping field are twos, which makes sense, but still just kind of understanding it a bit more. It's like, oh, I get it more now. Mary, it makes me think about, you know, when we think about, especially in the helping field, like burnout rates, right? And that whole idea of twos maybe having more difficulty with like resentment or just self-care types of things. I'm sometimes very research focused. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's any correlation with twos in the helping field reaching burnout quicker. You know, it's a very interesting thing to consider. That's, I think you got something, you're on something, maybe. But but it makes sense too why why those in the helping field, if they are twos, why they would go into that that field. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So what about the threes? Tell me about the threes. Performers are achievers. Threes need to be seen as successful, efficient, and effective. Threes are reading feelings. In fact, they even have trouble reading their own feelings as well as those of others. They often hide their anger, fear, sadness, or disappointment and embarrassment until they are alone to deal with them. They like to set short-term and long-term goals, and they usually achieve them. They motivate the rest of us to do things we might never have imagined, and when we win, they win. Threes need to see themselves as being masters of anything that they do. They keep setting the bar I for themselves. They need to be the best. And that differs maybe from other types because their motivation is to be the best. 
However, think of the demands that it has to place on them. When I first got interested in the Enneagram, I'd gone to a uh, conference on the Enneagram, and I met a priest there who was very, uh, uh, really pretty high up in his order. Very obviously, man was very accomplished and been very successful in what he had done. But he was telling me that he was a three, and he felt he felt so sad because he said the problem for him being the three is that others expect him to perform. And he can't on his own just let it go. He can't on his own just relax and not be the have to be the very best that he has to be, that he sees himself in. And so it was really sort of sad to see him and his own realization that he just wanted to be himself and he really couldn't do that. The fear of the three is that they believe they are loved for what they do and not for who they are. And that's what made this so sad. By believing they are primarily loved for doing, Threes have a tendency to focus too much on work and accomplishments and too little on their relationships. The message that the three did not receive as a child is it's okay to have your own feelings and identity. The message that the three needed to hear is that you are loved for yourself and not for what you do. The healing statement from the three would be, maybe I don't have to be the best. Maybe people will accept me just the way I am. Maybe others' opinions of me aren't so important. I love that. I think it's interesting because I'm a three and um, I don't see myself as wanting to be better than other people, but it's all internal. Like what else can I do to be better than I already am? And it is like a constant thing that you're working towards. And it's like, when does it end? When does it stop? Because what you're doing is already good enough. That's interesting because saying, I don't know that I thought about your type, but knowing you as I may know you, I'm not surprised. She's a workhorse. <laughs> Girl doesn't quit. <laughs> it does make sense. It's... I mean, it really does. It's and awesome. I can see where the drive is coming from. And yeah. it really does help me to see that about you. That, yeah, mm-hmm. wow, you're right. You are a three, aren't you? <laughs> and and that's what, and that, that the issue is that's what motivates you. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the work for you, your work is going to have to be in terms of how do I limit this? How do I start taking more care of myself? How do I start not being so concerned about how much I've got to accomplish? No, you're right. Completely. <laughs> this is now your therapy session, Jack. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm glad that you're identifying because I think as we, if we can identify ourselves this way, that we get, we certainly exactly it. This is how we get to know who we are and what we have to do in terms of doing our own work. She's good to know about coworkers too. Yeah. I just realized she's already described all three of us. I'm type one, Caitlin's two, and now Jacqueline's three. So there's us, three people. <laughs> there's <bottom>. us. Yep. <laughs> I have a, I have a uh, grandson who is a uh, three. And it, it's, he's exactly this. Makes his goals, got accomplished goals. He knows, he knows he's going to get them done. He knows that everything's going to be fine. Because he's got all of these goals, but he is he is just it goes from one thing to another to another to another. Now I want to say it's okay. You're wonderful without having to accomplish all that you do. But obviously, you know, and it, it, that that's work, and it may be a lifetime of work to do, you know, to be able to to withdraw a little bit. Yes, completely. This concludes part one of our interview with Mary on Enneagram Types 1 through 3. 
Next week, we're going to be focusing on types four through nine, so definitely stay tuned for that. If you have any questions, please DM us on Instagram at mentalhealthinyou. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. (laughs) 